This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Sadly, this time not without Max, or this time without Maxwell Vogue, because he can't make it this time. But uh, we'll still kind of try to keep uh, hang in there and uh, see if we can manage without him. And uh, well, today I've got a really uh, cool guest, uh, as Paul uh, Durso, and he's a neurosurgeon and he's a pioneer in using well surgery and three D printing in the broadest sense, and also uh, the founder of a company called Anatomics in Australia. So, yeah, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Doris. It's my pleasure. So, so first off, I mean, you got, you've been involved with, with 3D printing and surgery for a really long time. So, you know, at one point you're a neurosurgeon, right? And uh, you're, you're teaching in surgery and you're, you're, you're doing a lot of work. What, in what way do you come out in touch with, with 3D printing for the first time? So I first started um, my interest in 1991. And in 1991, wow. <laughs> the first, um, we didn't call it 3D printing in 1991, um, but the very first uh, 3D printer, or it was a stereolithography machine from 3D Systems, uh, came to Australia just in about 1990, and I learned about the technology, um, and I thought it would be a really good you know, project to figure out if we could get a CT scanner and use that data from a CT scanner and put it into the SLA 250, the stereolithography machine. Um, at that point in time, you know, really none of this was had been done before, and and uh, it was really at the very beginning of, of, of you know, medical 3D printing. Um, so mm-hmm. I started a PhD at that time and I got to work. Um, I got a grant of money from the hospital for $1,200. And with that money, then I started to look at how we could interface the CT scanner to the, to the stereolithography machine. Um, and you were one of the first it, people in the world to do this, right? I mean, uh, it was well, like you and Freed kind of neck and neck kind of thing, right? Or Maybe even earlier, Correct. I think. Exactly right. I learned about, uh, you know, what they're doing in Leuven in Belgium. And there was actually yeah. a chap called Bart Swalens who yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Bart was doing his PhD at the same time. And yeah. he was coming at for, for more of an engineering aspect. And I was coming at, you know, more from a medical or surgical aspect. So, uh, but those were the very early days. Yeah. And Bart, I think he's, he's a guy from Vito, right? He's a Vito. This just kind of like the kind of the belgian yeah, well, technology transfer from, yeah exactly yeah he moved on from materialize and uh yeah. but i i you know we had to write some code um using c++ mm-hmm. language and um it was a unix workstation um and we yeah. eventually figured out the hardest part was actually getting the data off the ct scanner because in those uh-huh. days are reel-to-reel tapes you know, the old-fashioned sort of tapes, a half-inch magnetic tapes, and the and the, the data was all yeah. encrypted by G. And uh-huh. so we had to back, hack into it, basically, hack into the tape and figure out how to get the data off. There was no <laughs> such thing as a DICOM standard in those days. Um, mm-hmm. And, the, you know, even though the files, it sounds ridiculous today, but they were like 40 to 60 megabyte files of data. And in those days, it was kind of massive. You know, we had floppy disks and things and... Um, just figuring out how we could get that data off the scanner and then into a computer and then process it and create a file that could be fed into the stereolithography machine oh, was wow. was quite a challenge. I can imagine. Did, um, it take, did one, this take weeks or like what, 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 just oh, to get one took file? Two years. Yeah. 
Wow. You know, only in 1992 or 90, 1992, yeah. I think it took a year or more. Uh-huh. We managed to, to hack into the into the scanner and we got the data and we printed a or through you know printed the first model from a CT scan. Okay. And you know that was one of the first in the world that was ever made. And once we figured that out, then it, the process you know we needed to optimize the process and then look at what the applications of the technology were mm-hmm. in 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 surgery. Okay, so what did you think at that time? And were you like you know, because, okay, yes, you can make parts, but this stereolithography, the resin isn't exactly the safest stuff in the world. I mean, did you think like this is going to be orthopedics or did you, did you have no idea what, what was really the potential? <laughs> well, uh, I, I was kind of interested in neurosurgery. I wasn't a neurosurgeon at that stage. I was a relatively mm-hmm. junior doctor, um, but I was very interested in reconstructive surgery. And so the hospital I worked at uh, I went to the what's called the Martyr Children's Hospital in, in, in Brisbane and in Queensland, and um, I showed them the very first model I made with my twelve hundred dollars. And the surgeons thought it was pretty cool, you know. So they said, "Look, you know, we're going to get some patients for you, and, and we could start making some and trying them out on these kids, you know, see see how useful they were." Mm-hmm. And um, and off we went. And we in in those days, it was like a whole frontier. It was like discovering, you know. Columbus discovering America, everything was new and everything we did was a world first, you know? So, you know, we made models of different conditions um, and literally everything we did was, had never been done before. You know, we, we did uh, simulated reconstruction on the models. We sterilized them, took them into the operating theater. Uh, I printed uh, vascular structures, um, you know, first day order. Um, we even did things like, you know, um, parts of liver and, pretty much everything was spine everything we did had never been done before so it was really kind of exciting to to see what was possible and i think you know this thing and you were doing this just as a researcher at a hospital or was there a company around it or was as a phd uh-huh. phd and, um and i was at university of queensland okay and but were there a lot of fellow travelers at the time in australia or were you just like you know kind of basically on your on your lonesome here uh doing this? well uh, you know, I, I was on my own. And in those days, I'd go to the library and you had to book time on a computer to, you know, to go on to PubMed. And and when I first started, there were only four publications in the world that had on the medical, in the literature that had anything to do with sterilithography. And I think two of them w- went really, you know, appropriate. So there was literally no, no information. And then gradually, I started to eke out um, who else in the world was, was interested in this. And then I did a world tour and... Um, and I traveled around and started to meet some other researchers who, who were doing this type of work. And, but it was literally just a handful of people around the world that were actually, uh, you know, looking at medical applications of 3D printing. And one of them was, was Bart, at, at, uh-huh. you know, who was uh, at the Embryonic Materialize uh-huh. in Leuven. Um, there was a place in, there's a Danish technological Institute. Um, there was, uh, a place, another place in Germany, um, that was doing some work. So there's literally no more than, you know, four or five people in the world that were researching this area at that time. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Right. And, and what would you, well, so for you, it was like, when did you know this was going to be like, you know, something you would like use the rest of your life or was it, would you just get and kind of get gradually dragged into it? Or were you like, Oh my God, this is it. This is like what I'm going to do in my development. Well, life too, you know, it was like a dream that you could get a scanner. I mean, 3d imaging at that point in time was also, was very new. Like 3d imaging was only just new at that stage. You know, the computing power was only just really available to do a 3d reconstruction. And that was on a workstation, like a, a GE workstation in the radiology. Uh, clinic you know um so 3d imaging was brand new and the thought of actually getting a 3d image and then printing it out 
you know, it was, it was just amazing, you know, and it, to me it was, it was incredible. And then when we actually did it, that was just, you know, I couldn't believe we actually did it. Um, and then to take that and literally start to investigate the applications, I, I was hooked on it very early. And, um, you know, just seeing the way it was starting to change people's lives. Like we developed the first custom reconstruction implant um, in 1993 um, for someone to reconstruct their head. Uh, previously, we'd get bone cement, mix it up in a bowl and, and bog it into someone's skull to try and, you know, fix the hole. And the stuff would you know, it was thermal, thermally polymerizing, you know, toxic bone cement that would go off on their brain and steam and we'd have to keep it cold. And and then we went to a custom yeah. implant that just fitted straight yeah. in, you know, it was just a revolution. And that, that mm-hmm. you know, that custom implant um, was, was the basis of anatomics then because the surgeons just wanted them. They wanted to keep having them. And so I set up mm-hmm. anatomics in 1995 mm-hmm. and uh, we're the first in the world to market with, with you know, custom reconstructive implants. And, and that mm-hmm. really was the start of anatomics. And then after that, I went into neurosurgery. Um, mm-hmm. And in neurosurgery, I've continued to use the technology ever since, basically, in my practice. Okay, okay. And so, so at the moment, you do both kind of things kind of simultaneously, right? You've got a, the neurosurgery practice and Correct. anatomics, yeah. right? And how do you do that? I mean, do you, yeah, do you well, it, sleep? <laughs> well, it's kind of busy. But, um, you know, my philosophy is as a doctor that, that, you know, research and discovery and innovation is part of my job as a, as a surgeon in that I should always be looking at new applications of technology. And so to me, it's all just one career, which is being a surgeon. Um, and the 3D printing is, is a tool that, that it allows me to do my surgery, you know, more efficiently. And it allows me to plan my surgery and help my patients. So I routinely use the technology with what I do. And, and obviously, when I'm doing that, I, I think of new ideas and innovation and that. And that's been fantastic. And, and you know, my work has, um, you know, has gone into all sorts of other areas through anatomics. I mean, we, we've, we've, we've done, uh, we, you know, a lot of well-first in anatomics and orthopedics and thoracic surgery and, um, you know, other areas as well, you know. Um, so it's been a great, um, you know, a great asset, I think, to, um, to be able to do my research work um, through anatomics and implement it in my practice. And, and it's all one thing to me. It doesn't, I don't divide myself as that part of me is 3D printing or part of me is anatomics or part of me is a neurosurgeon. To me, it's, it's what, what I do as a surgeon is implement technology that, that works for my patients. And was there a reason? Because everybody seemed to get started with CMF, right? Uh, cranial, cranial maxillofacial, right? Is there a reason yeah. for that, or is it was it just the simplest, or the most obvious, or or what was the reason for that? Well, well, the, I think cranial reconstruction. Um, it was not such an obvious thing to do because it was so crude to just bog up people's head with bone cement. So that was that was just an obvious, and that was an immediate commercial opportunity of the technology making those mm-hmm. cranial implants. It's a gold standard mm-hmm. all around the world now. So there was an immediate revenue stream from doing that. So that led people mm-hmm. into that area. And then the other interesting thing about CMF is that dentists and maxillofacial surgeons are used to using models anyway, because they always use like dental casting to look at the bite and um, you know, the occlusion and that sort of thing. So these were people who were used to using you know, physical models to plan their surgery. So it was a natural evolution for them to go to 3D printing. So that's why the dental area and maxillofacial was really quite rapid in, in the uptake of the technology. Um, and then very slowly it started to, you know, go into orthopedics and, and other applications. But I think mm-hmm. it, it, it was the practical use of the technology in CMF that, that really, you know, allowed it to take off. And that took another 10 years. So, but, mm-hmm. but 
by you know by 20 years ago um more and more it started to become you know uh common and now it's a gold standard obviously you know in so many things yeah i think that's interesting i like the idea because we always think in consumers when we're doing in consumers like don't try to change consumer behavior because it's never going to work right but for some reason, we think that doctors or surgeons are you know not people too you know and yeah, I think it's really interesting that you say that, that, you know, we're not changing their behavior. We're just giving them a new tool. They couldn't care how it's made. They just will use it, you know? And I think that's, whereas if you're going to go to somebody who's never used a model before in surgery, yeah, it's going to take a while for them to get used to that. Correct. So, yeah. Think- it's got to be an incremental, incremental, and then it's got to be immediately obvious what the advantage is to the surgeon, I think. Um, yeah. And if you tick those boxes and it's also then, you know, potentially you can create revenue, that's, that's the, you know, that's where the, um that's where the water wants to flow you know so at the time i mean was 3d systems were the materials companies interested in this because like, it was all very cutting edge well i took out a I, I created a patent on on medical 3d printing basically which was a, a very powerful patent on on taking the data from a ct to an mr uh, mm-hmm. to a 3d printer and i went to, you know and johnson and johnson took out an option of the tech on, the, on that patent and on my my idea back in 1995 and I traveled to New Brunswick in New Jersey and visited them and I brought all my models and, um, you know, and I sat and said, look, you know, this is the future, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they couldn't see it. Um, <laughs> and, um, and that patent got, got, you know, abused by everybody around the world and you couldn't defend it. And now 20, you know, it's yeah. more than, it's, it's, it's 25, 30 years ago. So that, that, that has expired. And I also went to 3D Systems, and they were in Valencia, California, um, oh, wow. Mountain View. Yeah. I think it's Mountain View, California. Um, and I went there, and and like you know, it, they had a magazine that they would publish every three months, and we were we featured in that as a. There you go. The you know the first application in medical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, I went there repeatedly, and I met Chuck Hull, and um, there was various different people there. They're all, obviously all gone now, but um, and you know they were very they were quite excited about it. I mean, the difficult part of this was that it was so far, we we're so, you know, early in the technology that, that you know, the computer um, 3D imaging was all the thing. You know, that was the future and three, everything would be 3D imaging and people couldn't quite understand the leap to, to a 3D printed model. And plus, it was kind of expensive in those days. It was, it was, it was difficult and finicky. Um, so it, it, it was, you know, no one could really see the future of it, you know. Mm-hmm. It was it was too, we're too far ahead, I think. Um, and then, of course, materialized. Well, they they sort of created their own three D um, stereolithography machine and pissed off three D systems. So they weren't talking to three D systems. And and then you know Bart had developed Mimic. Uh, it was called CT Modeler in those days. Uh, Mimic. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that that evolved into Mimics, but it was actually yeah. called CT Modeler was the first version. And the, and the cool thing about his software is it ran on a laptop. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of cool, and you know they took a took a really good approach. They never went to a three D rendering or a three D data set. They mm-hmm. always just used two D data sets and just interpolated between the the slices mm-hmm. to create your directly to your to your file that was for the laser. You know, so that was kind of clever, and it didn't require a lot of computational comp- power. Um, so you could run it on a laptop, and that was that was the success of, of materialized medical basically was what Bart developed in his PhD yeah. and that morphed into, into mimics and, and so forth. And because they're in the EU and they're, you know, there's lots of millions of people around them. It was easy for them to sort of develop it, but in Australia you're sort of isolated and it's very difficult. So mm-hmm. it was a different challenge here, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. You, you, you were, I think, crying out in the woods by yourself for a lot longer than Freed and, and the other guys were. I mean, I think it's also the proximity. They, they started a company near the university and they kind of fed off of that. Like it was very mutually kind of very exactly. beneficial, that, that little ecosystem, even though it was like maybe the ecosystem well, I remember, was 10 people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I remember going to a conference in, in, in Germany and, um, you know, I'd travel for like two days to get there you know and they just jumped in the car and driven for like six hours and it was like you know bloody hell you know um and they had everything in the back of a car that they needed their computer and you know stuff and this you know their little trade show Mm -hmm. and and meanwhile i'd traveled you know with a suitcase for two days to get there so Mm -hmm. it was it was difficult from australia but having said that you know being in australia it makes you very resilient and tough. So we had to, you know, mm-hmm. um, develop a, our business here in an isolated sort of form. Um, and, you know, we also are able to create a domestic market, which was then creating revenue for the company. And mm-hmm. uh, we had very, you know, strong support from our, from surgeons. And, um, you know, and we've been very innovative in, in developing, you know, applications for 3D printing and developing the software. We developed our own software. We, we never, you know, we, we had our own software we developed from the ground up. So we were sort of um, isolated, but but very resourceful and able to to do everything we needed to do. I think you know. Mm-hmm. But for, okay, a little bit, a little bit of rewind first, because first, okay, CMF to me looks relatively straightforward, right? We've got a you know a kind of like a, a hole or a cavity or something, a problem in somebody's face, and we make a you know a part that fills that space, and we've been doing that since the First World War, thereabouts. So you know, then printing it kind of is really straightforward. Although you need to get it work from the 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 the, the MRI scanner or the or the CT scanner or whatever, right? But then to go from that to cranium uh, cranioplasty and stuff like that, that's to me seems much more invasive and much more scary. Let's say, is it, was that a big step as well, or to go to like much more well kind of functional know, the, stuff? The interesting thing is, the interesting thing is that we just did stuff. You know, like I had a great. You know, when I was doing my research and so forth, we had had you know surgeons that that we could just do things. So I'd come up with an idea and I'd say, "Hey, look, let's try this," and they'd say, "Sure, let's give it a go," and we'd just mm-hmm. do it. And and you know, the ethics committees and things like that were you know, none of this was a difficult problem in those days. Uh, there was no mm-hmm. there was no regulations. It was unregulated. Um, you know, there was no interference, and it was actually quite easy just to think of new ideas and just you know almost immediately implement them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for example, I came up with the idea of creating a stereotactic template. So you could put a cutting guide on someone's head and cut out the bit of bone and then have actually an implant that would fit straight in. So if you had a tumor mm-hmm. that was affecting your skull, mm-hmm. um, I thought, well, you know, what we can do is we can just create a cutting guide and put it on the top of, of the model and cut out the hole out of the model and then make an implant to fit in the hole. And mm-hmm. I had that idea and like literally within a few weeks, we found a patient and we did it. And that was done. You know, mm-hmm. there you go. Um, now, to do that kind of thing now is almost impossible. You know, it's so mm-hmm. difficult now, you know, 25, 30 years later, the red tape mm-hmm. and the ethics and the bureaucracy and everything like that almost makes it impossible to do something like this. And so I guess, you know, that was why we we're able to innovate so much. I mean, you know, when we made the first, you know, um, we made a, you know, metal implant for, for the, the rib cage, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like this were, were possible, but now they're, they're a lot more difficult. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess it, 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 the, the landscape has changed um, and it's more difficult now to innovate and to create, you know, new new devices and, and uh, abilities than what it was, I think, 20 years ago. Okay. That's actually really interesting. I mean, I think uh, there's a, there's a, 
well there's a good reason for that as well i mean people have become more cautious between for for you know good reason like uh, you know these things with the breast implants and all these other things you know i think there there have been a lot of scares that and regulators will tend to drift towards more conservatism but it's interesting that it retards innovation i think also it also makes innovation more expensive which means it's much more likely the game of bigger companies right yeah well that's absolutely right and you know we're very overregulated. um you know the, the 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 regulators have sort of gone off in their own bubble now, um, and unfortunately, that's to the detriment of patients. Um, you know, I would always show the patient what we're doing beforehand and say, "Look, this is the model, and this is what we're going to do." And you know what? They love it. They loved it. They've never had a problem with with it doing stuff with you know patients. Um, we've never had a problem. You've got to get them on board, and you show them what you're doing and explain it to them. But we're not mass producing millions of devices that potentially can cause you know millions of patients to have a problem, right? We're only uh, we were focusing on people with real problems that needed to be solved, and the the traditional solution was not very good, like bogging up you know bone cement in someone's head um, when it's toxic stuff heating up and polymerizing is clearly not as good as a you know a, a pre prefabricated implant that's been you know, beautifully made and sterile. I mean, obviously that's better. And unfortunately, you know, you don't have to prove the obvious. And this is one of the problems we have, you know, with our current paradigm is that everyone thinks that you've got to create all this proof and evidence, right? But if something obviously is better, it's unethical then to put people through a trial to, to prove the obvious, you know? Um, and clearly, you know, planning and operation. And I had some guy ask me in a conference once, they said, well, show me the evidence that what you're doing in planning and operation using models is better, you know, is, 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 is effective. And I said, well, you know, would you like to have an operation where the surgeon turns up and says, what are we doing today? Or would you want an operation where the surgeon's actually planned it out and has got a 3D model and has thought about what they're doing? I mean, you don't have to prove that. Because clearly planning a, an operation with a 3D model is better than turning up with nothing. You know, it's, it's just an obvious thing. And you don't have to put people through randomized studies to prove that, you know. It's unethical to do that, actually. And we found out very quickly in our research that it's obviously better, you know, to have a copy of the patients before you walk into the operating theater. Clearly, that's better. And to actually sterilize a model and have the sterile model of the patient before you cut them open. I mean, obviously, that's better. You just have to make sure it's accurate and you can that's easy to prove. But once you've actually figured that out, I mean, clearly it's better. And you don't have to randomize people, you know, in a study to prove that because it's just obvious. At least that's the way I see it. You know, our scientific paradigm now, it seems to be you've got to prove the obvious, you know, and unless mm -hmm. you prove the obvious, then it's not safe and, it, and you can't use it. Um, and that's a huge barrier to innovation. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not just in 3D printing. I mean, you know, we never had to prove that taking a blood clot out of someone's head was going to be good for them, you know? You don't have to randomise that. There are lots of things that are just obvious. And I think um, the use of 3D printing in, in surgery is, is an obvious uh, application and it's clearly beneficial to patients, there's no doubt. Uh, the problem is not is not that it, 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 it's very helpful and it works. It's the problem is who pays for it. And reimbursement mm -hmm. is, is, is another big obstacle to the technology. Reimbursement is a huge obstacle. Um, because and it's a catch twenty two. Where what what typically the insurance company or the government will say was, well, show us the evidence that this technology is effective and works. Where's the evidence that it's cost effective? Where's the economic case for it? Right. And so here's a catch twenty two. Now you've got to go and prove the obvious to prove that then you know it's somehow economically viable or, or is a benefit. So it's a catch twenty two, and that's why you know it's always been difficult, right? 
isn't that what the FDA is trying to do with this compassionate use type of authorization stuff where they're trying to make it easier for people to do like one case or just like kind of like this more lighthouse kind of stuff where there's more kind of adventurous stuff? If you well, want? it's not. Yeah, but one case isn't isn't going to do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're looking at this with our rib cage reconstructions that we've been doing. I mean, you know, if you look at how they reconstruct people's rib cages, the state of the art at the moment, it's absolutely terrible, right? Mm-hmm. They get these titanium plates and screws. And it's like a Meccano set. They make it up on mm-hmm. the operating table and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, they get bones, cement and bits of wire and stuff. And they, they, they sort of make this stuff up as they go, right? Mm-hmm. And compare that to a, you know, to a star pore implant that's, a, you know, porous polymer scaffold that's that's manufactured to fit the patient. It's got so many advantages. And again, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's literally proving the obvious, right? It's not that the material isn't safe. We've been using polyethylene in surgery for, you know, for 40, 50 years. It's mm-hmm. just that it's something different. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the existing products are, are re- regulated and reimbursed. And trying to change that is incredibly difficult with new technology. Um, it, you can change things incrementally by very small bit amounts, and that's okay. But when you say, look, this is all junk and we've got a much better device, then you, you know, you're really in trouble and it's very difficult. Yeah, um, we see that in, so, in, in 3d printing. We see this as well, where a lot of the innovation is, ah, we're going to do exactly the same thing as the other guys are doing, or we're going to do exactly the same thing with the same material as the other people have done before. And we're going to do it for the talus, or we're going to do it for a different part of the body rather than, and then we see like the actual innovation where people are doing completely new things is very far in between comparatively. And new materials, of course, or new machines and things, new processes, yeah, that's so much more expensive that it, it, it is, it's very rarely attempted, you know? Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, but, you know, when people hear this, they're like, yeah, okay, but it's people. We have to keep the people safe, you know? And if we look at certain things, yeah, the polypropylene meshes, for example, right? you know, that are using surgery and that are leading to a lot of complications. There's, there's classes of implants that are leading to a lot of complications. People will automatically be like, yeah, we have to err on the side of the cautious here, you know? Well, you know, it's not that there was anything wrong with propylene mesh. It's incredibly mm-hmm. safe, right? It's just if mm-hmm. you put it in some in a woman's vagina, um, mm-hmm. you know, clearly it's going to it'll erode through and it causes problems. It was the app- yeah. use of that mesh in an inappropriate location that was a problem. It wasn't mm-hmm. that the mesh was made safely yeah. and sterile and all the rest of it. But if you do Good something point. stupid with a medical device, well, then you get bad results. Now, if Anatomics did something stupid and we got sued, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be in business. I wouldn't be here no. 30 years later if we were doing mm-hmm. things that didn't work or didn't fit. We, you know, we, we would have been wiped out very quickly. We mm-hmm. can't take a class action, you know, or like Johnson mm-hmm. & Johnson can. You know? mm-hmm. So what we do works and what we do is safe and effective. There's no doubt about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here 30 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, because the hardest thing you can do Mm-hmm. Doris is make a custom implant or make it a patient specific device because if mm-hmm. it's immediately obvious to the surgeon if it doesn't fit right mm-hmm. now an off the shelf device it, it it never fits because it's off the shelf right it's never going to fit a particular individual person mm-hmm. so you can make thousands of those off the shelf devices before the penny drops and someone realizes there's something wrong whereas mm-hmm. with a with a patient specific implant you know, mm-hmm. the surgeon, every time you, you know, your neck's on the, on the chopping block, because if it doesn't fit, the surgeon's going to say it didn't yeah. fit, right? It's yeah, obvious exactly. it doesn't fit. And clearly yeah. that device is, has got a non-conformity. Yeah. So that's why there's lots of people and lots of companies that think they can get into 3D printing and make stuff, but they mm-hmm. realize actually, well, it's bloody difficult. It's very difficult. 
Yeah. Um, I, I just spent two days, by the way, looking at all these non-conforming and these red letter, the notices and stuff from the FDA and all these other regulators about non-conforming implants yeah. and stuff like that. Also, the, the, the amount of things that can go wrong is completely insane as well. I think so. There's a there's a ton of things that, that can that can really go wrong from the packaging. I'm really very enthusiastic about 3D printed packaging, right? For all these surgeries, like you know, to have a, a packaging that really puts all the things that you have to implant and all the tools in order to make sure that everything is uh, implanted the right yeah. way. I love that as a use case. So for that, I looked at all these non-conformity issues and they're, they're huge. There's a huge amount of uh, these letters and these uh, communications that have to do with like, you know, packaging, buckling or seals being broken, all this stuff. And it, yeah. it's, it is really complicated. It sure is. So, and the one thing about the one thing about patient specific, I mean, cause I think it's really interesting you're, you're talking about this. Cause at one point I think I'd like to differentiate between like, like pure patient specific, which to me is a CMF implant or one of these rib cages where we're, you know, we have to have one puzzle piece and it has to be exact because otherwise it's not going to work. Right. Yeah. Um, or it's going to make that person's face look ridiculous. Right. Um, and then we have like, there was a lot of hype about patient specific orthopedic, right. Where people were saying that we yeah. can get, and then where, where I was talking to a surgeon uh, or an orthopedic surgeon uh, uh, and he was saying, well, you know, because I was really very enthusiastic about them. He was saying, well, if we have like 20 sizes, right, that'll be enough. So what he's saying is that for this orthopedic stuff, the blood loss, the faster recovery time, we can get a lot of those benefits by just having 20 different implants instead of, let's say, seven. And then, then we don't have to have the extra risk and the actual difficulty of making all these implants patient-specific. And to me, that really made sense of being, wait, of course it's cheaper. Of course it's going to be way safer to just have 20 different versions. And that's going to be much easier as well to get to regulators than trying to define like the each individual case of each in instance of that implant and trying to get them to approve that, right? So, And then there's also, there's the dream patient specific where we're like talking about different bone adhesion properties or different modulus or different kind of like you know, texture for patients and stuff. And, and what are you, what are your feelings about that? Are we, are we supposed to, are we, should we pare down this well, patient specific like, stuff a bit or? Well, I think what, what you're going to understand is an orthopedic, I mean, in the, the leading knee implant, knee replacement device that has been around for over almost 20 or 30 years or longer has not been changed for 20 or 30 years. Well, comes in eight no. sizes. Right, eight I mean, sizes. Okay. okay. Now, there's a lot of inventory and logistics and supply chains that have to make sure those eight eight sizes of implants are on the hospital shelf. Right. Now, if you've got a busy hospital like I work, and there might be ten orthopedic surgeons doing surgery, um, and you run out of one of the sizes, okay. Well, then what do you do? You got the patient. You've cut them open. You got their knee exposed. So mm -hmm. you, you can't put in a, a a bigger implant, or you know, you can't. Sorry, you can't put in a um. Uh, you know, you, you got to put in, you know, either a bigger one or a smaller one than what fits into the into the patient. Okay, and this happens all the time. You know, you, you, oh, cool. this happens all the time. <laughs> they don't have the right size because they've run out, um, yeah. and then they've got to get a taxi and get one sent somewhere else for the patient's bleed. So they just put in whatever fits the best. You know, yeah. Um, so it's all very well having twenty sizes, but then there's all of the logistics and inventory and supply chains, and basically the orthopedic companies they just want to keep on making the same implant. They don't want to innovate. Yeah. They don't want to make anything new. They don't want to mm -hmm. risk it because they've got they're they're, they're printing money in these foundries just manufacturing massive numbers of implants mm -hmm. right it's it's mm -hmm. it's it's you know cost of goods is as low as possible if you're just making the same thing for 30 years it's perfect yeah. um so mm -hmm. what they do and they're very clever they say well let's get a robot okay so now instead of the surgeon you know hacking into your knee they get a robot and they program in one size one to eight and then the robot carves it out a bit more accurately than what the surgeon can do but it's still the same implant 
But now you've got the robot and you're selling a robot. And if they if, if they use 100 implants you know, a month, then they get a free robot, right? So they're very clever. The last thing these companies want to do is start making patient-specific implants because that, their whole factory becomes redundant. Mm-hmm. Their whole supply chain and logistics and marketing becomes redundant. It mm-hmm. all falls over. Um, so there's no incentive whatsoever for large orthopedic companies to make patient-specific devices. There's a lot of incentive for the patient, obviously, because then it fits them perfectly. And you think about it, would you go and buy, um, you know, glasses that didn't match your prescription for your eyes? If you had your tooth knocked out, would you get an off-the-shelf tooth and put it in your mouth where everyone can see it? It's only because no one can see the knee implant in their knee. That's why they get away with it, right? And 20% of of knee surgery doesn't go very well. The patients aren't happy. They're dissatisfied. One in five. And then you know what? They come back for a revision and the revision, they get paid even more, the orthopedic company, because it's even more expensive to have a revision implant. Mm. So I looked at that for debris as well. Specific, well, there's a whole stack of different problems. But so I think mm. you're seeing, again, it's an incremental thing. Now you're seeing planning and orthopedics using 3D printing and they're planning and they're cutting guides and you can see it sort of incrementally getting there. And for certain applications like acetabular reconstruction, you know, custom implants are now a gold standard really for orthopedic acetabular, you know, for revision hip surgery. And, you know, it's a gold standard because there's such a big advantage in using it compared to an off the shelf. Um, Mm -hmm. The the big problem is, again, it gets back to the cost and who pays for it and the regulatory situation and all these sort of aspects are the the tough bits. Um, Look, I never, I don't think that that, that patient specific is going to replace by any means a lot of these Mm -hmm. devices. But there's a lot of barriers to it. There's a lot of barriers. And why, and why is acetabular so much better than off the shelf? When you have a revision hip implant, you've got to take out the, the cup that's in the, the, like the socket in your hip. Then you've got to get that socket out of there. And it's often, you know, it's, it's put in with bone cement. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, bits of bone come with it and, it, and it, sometimes it's fractured around it. So you're left with a big hole in their pelvis. And then you've got to reconstruct mm-hmm. that. And, and that's why the um, 3D printed titanium implants are, are very good for that. They're, they're very good for spinal implants too, for fusion cages. They're very, you know, they've become a gold standard pretty much for, for interbody fusions, you know. You did one of the first of those, uh, yeah, C1, so we did C2. The, yeah. yeah, so we've, um, we've done the, I did the world's first 3D printed spinal, uh, patient-specific spinal implants. We've done a yeah. number of those. Um, and, and you, you know, I mean, that's, that's putting, your, again, putting your neck on the chopping block. When you actually, well, not you know, the only one, <laughs> the patient's kind of high risk surgery, and at the best of times, it can be very high risk. But then to actually yeah. come up with a device that's never been used before and put it in is kind of it's kind of risky stuff, you know. But having said that, um, they've all gone really well, and the patients have been very satisfied. And we haven't had any problems, touch wood, with what we've done. You know, the same when we we, we did the world's first. Uh, you know, whole bone uh, 3D printed titanium bones, a calcaneus for, for a patient mm-hmm. who's going to have his leg amputated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you do it for good reason. Um, and again, the patient needs to understand, you know, what's going on. So it's very important to talk to them and say, look, this is what we're going to do. Are you happy with, for, you know, for us to do this? This is the implant. This is what it looks like and show them, get them as part of it. They've got to be on board with the, with the procedure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love I love the patient, I call this like patient decision models. I think that's a really, because people use patient specific models for really complicated things, but I really think, and they also use them for training and they use certain pathologies for training and stuff like this. But I really think that it would really make a lot of sense to print like 500 models that would show the major decision moments, you know? Like, hey, sir, you have this kind of cancer. So for you, we would have to either cut off the leg or cut it off below the knee or what, you know what I mean? To just show 
visually to the patient the different options they have in the, the most like you know the most uh prevalent scenarios i really think that would be that should be much more yeah. prevalent to have a library of these things you know well, the, you know, it's all, it's all possible, and, and some companies have. I mean, for craniofacial surgery, there are libraries of three D printed um, various mm -hmm. different disorders and things that you can you can mm -hmm. download. I mean, uh, it, it certainly these sorts of things are available. I mean, mm -hmm. I use I use the three D printed models routinely in spinal surgery. I must have done a thousand cases probably using them, and mm -hmm. um, I print out a model of the patient's spine and I show it to them before the surgery and say, "Here's your spine. What do you think? Can you see where the problem is?" You know, and I always mm -hmm. start by showing it to them, saying, "Can you figure out?" What's wrong with you? And they mm -hmm. look at it, you know, and a lot of the times they'll figure it out just by looking at it. And they're not medically trained. And then and then you say, okay, well, yeah, this is right. And then there's a couple other things I'll show you on the model, what's wrong. And then I take the model back off them and then I get a, a calipers out or a ruler and I measure up the, the screw sizes and I plan the surgery right in front of them. And they're, they're asking me questions and they can see the planning going into it. So this is how I use the technology to the patients, you know, we're part of the team and they're seeing it, they're looking at it and I say, right, okay, I'm going to use this model in your surgery, I'll sterilize it and I'll have it right there. So I'm doing minimally invasive or keyhole surgery. So I don't have to cut mm -hmm. you open because I can already see what's wrong with you. And then when you come back and see me after the surgery, I'll give it to you as a present. You know, you can take it home, show you, show your family, you know. Uh -uh. And so that model, and this is the utility of the technology, it's used for my for my planning, it's used for my informed consent. It's used for my navigation in the surgery. Mm -hmm. And then it's given back to the patient as a, as a trophy, a reminder for them about mm -hmm. what, what you know, they can show other people what, mm -hmm. what, what their spine looked like. Mm -hmm. um, and and you, you, can't, you can't beat that utility. I mean, there's no computer, um, mm -hmm. you know, augmented reality or virtual reality that can, can, can be more powerful than that. You can't. And, uh, and that's mm -hmm. why I call it real virtuality. And real virtuality is a copy of the person's anatomy. And there's nothing better than that, a physical copy, because you don't need to boot up the computer and download the software and figure around, you know, it, it's there, it's real, and, and it can't go wrong. And that's that's the power of the technology. The issue, again, is who pays for it. That's the problem. And, mm -hmm. and, and who pays for it has not been resolved. 30 years later, we still don't mm -hmm. have a system where people value the technology. And, and only when you value it will people then pay for it. Yeah, well, but it is starting a little bit, right? There is reimbursement possible in the states now for uh, what is it called like for, for 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 surgical models and stuff like that, right? It is starting, and so right. Well, I don't think there's anywhere where it's really, you know, I, I think in Japan they might they might re reimburse it through some of the insurance, but mm -hmm. you know, thirty years, it's thirty years, Doris. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. Oh. You know, you think about it, 30 years, and this is not technology that is, you know, kind of doesn't help much. This is, you know, really valuable technology. Um, and you got to ask the question, how come? You know, why is it? Um, and, it and the reason is because it's a paradigm shift, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it is a paradigm shift. And, and unfortunately, you know, as I said before, incremental changes are acceptable. But, but if you say, actually, let's just change the paradigm, that's mm -hmm. kind of hard. It, it's a big, big mm -hmm. shift that has to occur in the way people think. I guess, I guess, and it just needs to be a bit more top of mind with regulators and stuff. But that's why also, like, you know, 3D printing success in surgeries is overnight success. It took over 30 years, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's like yeah, it took a, a long time. But, but let's talk a little bit about anatomics because you touched on it a little bit. Because I think it's really interesting that you guys, yeah, kind of because you're isolated all the way over in Australia, you had to kind of build up everything yourself, right? Because you guys are like a full solution company, essentially. I can, you know, you get software, I can get kits, I get everything from you guys, right? Yeah. And, and uh, one anatomics is a, uh, it's really, you know, as I said, it's, it's an extension of my work as a surgeon and it's a surgically driven company. Um, and we've got, you know, a team of people who are really committed and dedicated. I mean, uh, I've got people who've been with the company for 20, 25 years. 
Um, so, you know, we're a very committed team of people and it's a can-do sort of company where people come to us and they say, can you solve this problem? You know, we can do it. You know, yeah, well, why not? We'll give it a go. Um, so we make everything from kids' ears to rib cage to cranial implants to orthopedic implants. We, you know, we've done a whole bunch of different stuff um, because it is can-do. And the bottom line is that we're helping people. We're, we're, we're solving problems that, that otherwise, you know, can't be solved or, or difficult to solve. We're helping surgeons create solutions. And, and that's always been the philosophy of the company um, to do that. Um, and you know, it, it, it's certainly very challenging and, you know, the medical device industry is absolutely brutal. You know, it, it is a brutal industry, the regulation, the reimbursement dealing, you know, up against multinational corporations, the risk involved with it. It is a, it is a very, very difficult landscape to navigate through. Um, but I think, you know, if, if you're committed to, to solving problems for surgeons that really make a difference to people, um you know that that's really been the key to our success okay i understand it but you're still really small how do you get the money to develop all this stuff and and, then approve it and all this kind of stuff go to clinical you know because it just the 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 economics of like because we know there's a standard especially in orthopedics the company is too small company either goes to to clinical trial then gets lots of money or sells right or a company yeah proves out the technology enough and then flips to striker or j and j or any of these guys right they're all in you know, right. to me then, and what we're seeing now is we're seeing either kind of like what I call like asset light companies that are just saying, we're not going to do any of the production. We're just going to do the design. We're going to go to an outsourced company to make it. And we're, and a lot of these guys, they're focusing on one thing, like one, let's say technology, like ours in one design or one kind of material. And they really tend to focus on one implant. And you guys are doing like tons of different stuff. How does that work? We've done tons of stuff because it was, it hadn't been done before and we give it a go like custom custom spinal implants you know we're really focusing now more on on our core strengths in the business um and we've also um Starpore, uh, which is our polymer tissue scaffold mm-hmm. for reconstructive surgery where we've developed um off-the-shelf um, implants now that we can sell um that generates you know, more revenue for us and opens applications in. We're, we're focusing very much on neurosurgical applications. I think we've got a, a very focused business strategy because I, I've got full ownership of the company. Um, I'm able to, I haven't got any pressure on me from investors and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm able to manage the company as I see fit. Um, and we're creating revenue. We've been an organic company from day one generating mm-hmm. revenue and mm-hmm. so we, you know, we eat what we kill and it goes back into the company. Mm-hmm. We don't, it, 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 company doesn't have to make profit. It, it, mm-hmm. You know, we're really focused on, I think, on developing our, our strategic, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, value proposition, which I think we're doing pretty well now. And, um, you know, watch the space, you know. As I said, I mean, 30 years of work has gone into it. And I think, you know, there's a very deep understanding of the technology and, and what it's good for, what it's not good for, where the opportunity mm-hmm. lies. And and I think we're, you know, we've got a pretty good understanding of that now. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, as I said, I mean, the 3D printed spinal cages, anyone can make them. There, you know, mm-hmm. any there's thousands of them out on the market. Um, mm-hmm. so that's, that's, you know, cut, tough business to compete against Johnson and Johnson, you know, and, and big mm-hmm. companies, cause they can all make that stuff. It's not that hard. And little companies can 3d print spinal cages, but you try and make a kid's ear, mm-hmm. you know, that's more challenging, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you make a kid's ear and you send it to Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles and they put it in the, you know, the world's top surgeon and say, wow, this is great. You know, I mean, that that's a lot more difficult. 
I think we're focusing on stuff that other people can't do, and we're you know we're refining our business strategy. And and mm-hmm. you know I see another thirty years of work still to go into this. You know we're developing software mm-hmm. architecture and so forth. So we're not a, a get rich quick company, and we're not the sort of mm-hmm. company that's going to flip to you know to a bigger company necessarily. We're in it for the long haul, and um, you know I guess I, I enjoy the innovation and and the ability to refine and continually improve and stay ahead of everyone else in what we're doing you know that's what gives me kicks you know okay but but at the same time it, it had to have been very tempting there would have there have been people that have come to you and said hey can we buy it right there have been people that come to you hey we'd like to put in for 20 percent. we could put in x million you know the, you know what made you resist yeah. those kind of temptations what made you like is it the vision from the start or was it just this <sighs> perseverance thing or it's a good question. I mean, I think as soon as more people, other people get involved and they want to make money out of it, that's that's mm-hmm. starting to create a drag on what on what I want to do and how I want to innovate and where I want to go to a certain extent. Um, and I never really wanted to have that drag because I don't. Even thirty years after thirty years, I don't see that we're you know only now are we getting to the point where we're really the regulatory framework is catching up. We're starting to see the regulations actually you know become born in australia the tga has only just really recognized you know how this is going to be regulated we're only seeing now what the future will be in the regulatory environment for the technology the reimbursement is only just you know starting to to come into into place i see ourselves being positioned now to take advantage of how that regulatory and reimbursement landscape will will occur um, and being in a good position then to, to do well out of that because it's only when that those regulatory and reimbursement structures are in place can this technology really take off um, mm-hmm. it's being held back by those issues so a lot of our positioning and anatomics has been to be well positioned for when the regulatory and reimbursement situation changes and then we're ready to really scale the technology dramatically I think um, and I, I certainly see the future as being um, the software architecture to uh, to be able to uh, drive the quality regulatory and reimbursement process. I think that's where our biggest opportunity is. So refining that software architecture and having a good understanding of how to implement that in a distributed manufacturing environment i think that's that's the beautiful thing and we're seeing now it's coming into hospitals and you're seeing 3d printing coming into hospitals um but no one's making implants right they're not making implants in hospitals now that's going to change and when that change because that's where the money is the money isn't in making models you know it's it's all kind of fun and stuff but that's just hobby stuff and mm-hmm. so all of these labs that make models are basically hobby labs making interesting mm-hmm. models of, of funny kids and things, you know? There's no money in it, okay? And, and I, the money is actually making prosthetic devices and implantable devices. That's that's where, mm-hmm. where the revenue comes from in this business. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why the big companies do not like the idea of distributed manufacturing and distributed device manufacturing occurring because their factories become redundant. So... To shift from hobby labs in hospitals making stuff to making actual implantable devices, that's a massive change and a massive barrier and a massive you know change that'll have to happen. It will happen, I'm sure of that. We're seeing now the HSS or the Hospital for Special Surgeries has a bunch of Arkham uh, machines, and uh, they're the uh, first in the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, well, the, the well, and maybe one or two. There was also there was one machine, I think, at the at the veterans uh, thing in the states as well. But but they're the first that really do it, like in a really organized, really big, big scale. Well, but even they work with Lima Corporate, right? I mean, and the hospital for surgical surgery, people don't know, it's right. like a super specialized hospital in New York where they do I don't know more 
uh, kind of like knee and TK, TK procedures is almost anywhere else. Right. I think. So right. even they are leaning on Lima corporate to run that lab and to print those, uh, those things. Do you really right. think that, that, you know, just the strikers are going to open up, a, 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 a you know, a production location, or do you really think it's that the hospital is going to be able to disrupt what the, the large implant companies are doing? Well, it's going to be challenging, very challenging, I think. And again, it's an incremental thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's incredibly difficult for a hospital to start making knee replacements. But, you know, it's not mm-hmm. going to happen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But hospitals making cranial implants and making CMF implants, um, yeah. that's going to happen without a doubt, right? Making mm-hmm. cutting guides and, and, and tools, that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the incremental shift. I mean, anatomics, we've really, we focus on polymer implants um, because polymer implants i think you know it's not as sexy as a titanium implant but polymer implants kind of you know um have a lot of advantages particularly in cmf surgery you know our strategy is more an incremental strategy but looking at going from you know from model to cutting guide to then polymer implants and i think there's a strategy there that we, we would look at um but to go to load-bearing orthopedic implants i mean that that's a, a, a quantum change you know and and mm-hmm. we're nowhere near ready for hospitals to start doing that that's not going to happen for probably a decade or two i don't think yeah, it'll probably happen way. eventually but it's not yeah. going to happen for a long time yeah, i think the, the hss model where you have like a really specialized people with a high volume surgery um in a really specialized area with, with i think that's that really if more people did that then it would be much more prevalent more quickly but there's, is, I can't think of many other hospitals that are that specialized and do that many operations at the well, same time. You know, you, know? you need a lot of money, and you need a Lima yeah, also to, yeah, to yeah. really fund it. Yeah, they have a ton of money as well. I mean, to have like the best knee surgery place in New York, hey, that's <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. I mean, have you ever been to walk near near Central Park? It's like all the downstairs offices are doctors. <laughs> All right. right. So, um, uh, but okay. So, a little bit. Talk, talk to me one more thing. I want to know a little bit about because you mentioned it about the star pour, right? What is that? Because that's that seems yeah. to be like coming to the front of what you guys are doing. What is that exactly? So, star pour is um, a porous polyethylene um, mm-hmm. polymer, um, mm-hmm. and you know one of the things that 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 I find interesting in, in we haven't touched on is bioprinting and regenerative mm-hmm. medicine and this, these types of things, right? And I, I figured out that a long time ago that that you know our biggest market is actually you take a piece of bone out of someone's head and we make a custom implant to reconstruct them right now traditionally what they did is they got that bit of bone and they put it in a fridge and uh, you know and ideally minus 70 degrees and then they get the piece of bone and they come and put it back in the person's head now Uh that doesn't work as well as one of our implants you know Uh um it's got a higher complication rate it's unstable biologically you never know what's going to happen to a piece piece of dead bone but if you, you think about it, if, if the person's own piece of bone doesn't do very well, you know, what's, what chance have you got of bioprinting stuff, putting it into people? You know, <laughs> it, it, it's a dream. It's a delusion, I think. Um, okay, so okay. we've focused uh, on safe, safe materials, safe materials um, that, that have got a long history of, of safety in medicine because that, that reduces your risk. But then re-engineering those materials and using 3D printing technologies to, to, to make them better and smarter. And Starpore is an example of that. So it's a polyethylene scaffold um, and tissue grows into it. So within four to six weeks, the body's tissue grows, blood vessels grow into it and it vascularizes and becomes literally part of the body. But the advantage of Starpore is it it maintains its mechanical integrity and shape. It doesn't change. So in 20 years, that piece of polyethylene is still going to be the same. So therefore, you've got a device that will maintain integrity and shape 
and it also vascularizes, so it reduces the risk of infection and other complications. Um, so it's got the best of both worlds. It sort of integrates in the body but maintains its structural integrity. And that's the future, I think. At least that's where, where we're heading. And that's why we can use it for rib cages because you can have very big implants that vascularize and stabilize. The problem you have with titanium and metal implants is they encapsulate and they can erode and fluid can collect between the implant and the tissue. There are all sorts mm-hmm. of pro- problems with titanium. Um, and, you know, and then you buy a printed type of stuff. It sounds great, but it's a delusional, you know, if you can't regulate a bit of plastic, how are you going to regulate something that comes out of, you know, cells and biological structures and so forth that are completely unpredictable? So that's why we've come up with Starpore. And what we did is re-engineered that, that polyethylene scaffold into something that's very strong, very light, and we can manufacture at, at a low cost. Um, and mm-hmm. that's another, you know, issue with, with, with medical devices is that, you know, pretty expensive um, part of the philosophy of anatomics has been we want to manufacture devices that people can can actually afford to use. Um, and we want to then teach them how to make it for themselves. And that's the distributed modeling. So Starpore is, is, is actually very, can be made quite cheaply and it can be made and distributed into countries that can't afford expensive devices that certainly would never be able to afford 3D printed titanium for reconstructive surgery. So Part of our philosophy is to create a product that is is the best possible, but also can be made affordably, and then potentially they can make it themselves in their own hospitals. And that's that's our vision at Anatomics, mm-hmm. is to create a technology that, that is affordable, and that people can actually make it themselves, and we'll show them how to do it. So that that's what I've spent the last thirty years developing, and I think you know we're at a point now where we'll be able to 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 really implement this. Um, quite effectively and, and Starpore is our flagship and we make you know as i said we make kids ears out of the stuff and and that's like the holy grail of, of tissue engineering is to make a kid's ear so you know i think we've you know we've reached we've reached that that stage and to have it have them being put in and in, in you know it's cedar sinai is is really you know proves it out and paul thank you so much for this this is wonderful thank you so much for for your time today it's a great pleasure and uh, yeah, and no, I wish you a lot of luck with your business, and then and, uh, and uh, really inspirational. I love that you're uh, you, yeah, you've had a business that you kept to yourself, if you will, and then have grown it over the years rather than selling it out or flipping it to someone else. And and uh, yeah, that you've been innovating for so long. It's uh, I think it's meant a lot to this industry and uh, to people in general. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Joss, and I really appreciate you reaching out. Um, we don't get much attention here in Australia, but when we do, it's it's very much appreciated. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot. And uh, well, thank you guys for listening. Uh, My name is Joris Beals, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.